to Calvary Chapel of Columbia, where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time. And now here's Pastor Tim with today's message. That I've entitled, Dear Church. Dear Church, uh, we, for the next seven weeks, we are going to be studying the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation, chapter 2 and 3. Now, I know I told you last week that we would be in the book of Philippians, and as I began to study the book of Philippians on Monday morning, and I had read through it a few times, and I was kind of thinking like, Lord, uh, this doesn't seem right to me. I don't know why. I, I don't feel like this is where we're supposed to be. I was studying through it, and it's an incredible book, actually, and we're going to go right to it right after this, but, and it's a book about joy, and so, you know, in, in, if you're in a season of, uh, you know, just in the, in the valley, you feel like you're in the desert, hey, in seven weeks, we're going to teach you how to have some joy in the midst of your trials and tribulations, but uh, I felt like the Lord uh, drew my heart specifically to the, the seven churches, the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. And here's why. Because I feel like at, at this day and age, at the state, I'm not talking about the, the church at large, I feel like we, we as a church need to take some time to evaluate our hearts. And I need, as a pastor, to take some time to evaluate my own heart and to, to consider, Lord, where am I? Because, if, listen, if you don't self-examine, if you don't take some time to examine where you are in the Lord and let the Lord speak into your heart in terms very specifically about the things that, you know, he, he's, he's pleased with and the things that he's not so pleased with, then you're really not going to progress in your Christian walk. I don't know about you, but I personally would like to see a revival in my life. I would like to see, not, not, that, I'm, it's not that I'm not serving the Lord and not that I don't have joy and anything like that, but listen, I know that doing the, the, these things continually, day in and day out, I need the Lord to revive my heart, and I, maybe you're the same way. Maybe the Lord's going to speak to you in the same way he's going to speak to me. I feel like this is a great place to do that in these seven letters to these seven literal churches located in Asia, modern-day Turkey. And the Lord writes some very specific things to them to, to, for them to consider. And my prayer is that as we go through these seven letters that you too would consider what the Lord would say to you because these are not just letters to some ancient churches that have no application today, but they are very applicable to the modern church and to the modern-day Christian. We don't look to Scripture as if it's ancient text that, we don't, that has no relevance to us today, although there are many, many people, even in the church, that look to the Word of God in that way. We do not look at, to the Word of God in that way. We believe that God is timeless. Therefore, His Word is timeless. It doesn't matter what age or day you live in, God's Word is applicable, and it's still speaking in the same way. Now, anytime you look at a Bible text, that you have to look at the historical side of it first in order to get the correct context of the verse. And so as we, we go through these seven letters, we'll look at the historical view of what was going on in that time period and all of those kinds of things. But don't miss, don't miss the application. Don't miss how Jesus wants to speak to your heart about these things, and I'm super excited about it. And so, with that said, if you would turn with me this morning to Revelation chapter 2, Revelation chapter 2, if you need a Bible, raise your hand, we'll make sure you get one, uh, Revelation chapter 2, and we're going to begin looking at verse 1. Stand with me, if you would, please, if you're there, Revelation chapter 2.
Beginning in verse 1, we read, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. God, we, we thank you that you will speak to our hearts today through this text, although it may have been written some 2,000 years ago. By your Holy Spirit, you will make it come alive to us today. We ask you, Father, to just speak to every one of us, Lord, that you would draw our hearts centered upon Jesus this morning and that we would have ears to hear what your Spirit would have to say to us this morning. And so we ask you to come now, teach us, Lord, by the power of your Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can be seated. The Apostle John is writing this letter instructed by Jesus on the island of Patmos as he has been exiled there. And what's interesting is that as Jesus begins to speak to John, he gives him really a very clear outline of the book of Revelation in the very first chapter in the 19th verse. Here's what Jesus said to John. John, I want you to write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. Now, notice the tense. The things that you have seen, that's past tense. The things that are, that is present tense, and the things that are to come, that is future tense. And so as John is writing this, he writes the things that he has seen in chapter 1. He writes, namely, he writes and it illustrates for us the description of Jesus Christ as he, you know, tries to describe that which is he has seen, and he tells us that he has seen the glorified and risen Savior of the world, Jesus Christ, Lord of all. And he describes for us in chapter 1 that looks like the things that he's seen. As we move into chapters 2 and 3, we find John writing the things which are. The things which are are there are seven literal churches located in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And it's those seven churches that uh, John begins to write to and instruct. That is in present tense. And as we come to chapter 4, through chapter 22 in the book of Revelation, we see John write the things that are to take place after this. Now, this is a very, very clear outline, gives us some understanding of the eschatological timeline as it relates to, uh, you know, prophecy and, and how things are going to unfold. I believe that it helps us specifically understand uh, specific events that are such as the rapture of the church, the tribulation period, the second coming of Christ, the millennial reign of Christ, the, the new Jerusalem that will come down from the heavens. So, you know, we find those things here. What I find interesting is that after chapter 3, the word church is no longer mentioned in the book of Revelation. 
So, past tense, the things that, w- that you've seen, the church is mentioned. The things that are, the church is mentioned. The things that will take place after this, the church is not mentioned at all. You find that interesting. I find that interesting. I think that, you know, the fact that, they, that, that John mentions the word church 20 times in three chapters and then no longer mentions that word after chapter 3 is one of the many reasons, and I say one of the many reasons, I believe that the rapture of the church will take place before the tribulation period. And there's many, many other reasons for that, but this is one of them. The word church does not exist after Revelation chapter 3. And in fact, it, it seems like to me that there is a, an event that happens in John, literally, that is a picture of the rapture of the church. Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, here's what happens. Listen to this. After this, after what? After I wrote about the things which I have seen and the things that are, after this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. John was literally caught up in the air with Jesus Christ in these moments, and then the Lord reveals to John for us this time known as Jacob's trouble, or maybe to you and I known as the tribulation period. This is the, 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 the time period in which I believe the Bible describes where the Lord is reaching out to Israel, where he, is, where he has completed the, the, the Gentile church, if you will, and he is now the grafting in of the, the vine, uh, and now he is focused on Israel, that he has turned his eyes back to Israel. God has not forsaken Israel. He's just waiting. They're partially blinded today. Can they come to Christ? Of course they can, and many are. But there's a partial blindness that has happened. And, you know, when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, the Lord, which I believe ends with the rapture of the church, the Lord will then turn his sights back to Israel during the tribulation period. At the end of seven years, the second coming of Christ, where Jesus will literally come from heaven to earth in bodily form, and he will take his throne in Jerusalem. He will then for 1,000 years, literal years, physically rule and reign on his throne in Jerusalem. And he will rule with an iron scepter. What does that mean? That means that there will be judgment on the spot for sin. Why? You see, Satan is bound for 1,000 years. No longer do you have the temptation of the spiritual realm. The, the, the war that we just talked about last week and the week before in Ephesians chapter 6. No longer do you have that war, but there is still the sinful flesh to deal with. And during that time, by the way, the book of Ezekiel, I believe, describes for us what the millennial reign will look like. And it will, there will be a physical temple where there will be sacrifices and it will all point to Jesus. It's going to be cool. I hope to be there ruling and reigning with Jesus. I believe we will be. But, but the, then the millennial reign happens. After that, we find in, in, in the book of Revelation the event known as the great white throne judgment. And finally, the new Jerusalem comes down from heaven. So these are the events that will take place, and these are the things that John describes for us 
by way of, uh, you know, that Jesus describes for us through John in Revelation chapter 4 all the way through Revelation chapter 22. It's a very clear picture, I believe. We presently sit today in the time period, I believe, in the outline in which John has given us in Revelation in that present day, the things that are. The things that the future tense, although there are some that believe we're in the tribulation period, I don't think we are. I don't think we're anything close to what the book of Revelation describes for us as the tribulation period. But we are in the present tense age, the age of grace, the age of the church, the age in which John is writing about in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. Why do I say all this? Because I, I want you to understand that these letters that are written to these literal churches in Asia are also written to you today. They're relevant for you. The, the, the eschatological timeline there sa says that to you and I. It tells us that this is relevant, that we need to listen, that as much as Jesus was writing to a church, you know, seven churches 2,000 years ago, that he's writing to you today very much individually. The, the church in the Bible, understand, is not an entity. It's a gathering of people. You are the church. The church without you is not the church. The church is you. Therefore, the letters written here are written to you individually. I believe that they describe for us, uh, you know, a, a very specific thing. Now, there are those that would ask, why in the world would God write these, to these seven churches? There are many other churches in the Bible that have been you know, that you could write to. You could write to the Thessalonica churches. You could write to the, the Corinth, the churches in Corinth. You could write to, you know, the church in Jerusalem. I mean, there's, there's other, you know, prominent churches in the Bible that aren't being written to. Why these seven churches? Many believe that it's a geographical thing because John was off the coast, of the west coast of Asia Minor in this island of Patmos. And if you look at a map, you'll see that that these churches form like a bell. Essentially, you have Ephesus, and then you have Smyrna, Pergamos. The way that it's written, it's like just in order. You, John is going to go from Patmos to Ephesus, and then he's going to follow this curve, you know, and, and, and all of that. Okay, that, that's cool, but I don't know, think that's the reason why Jesus is like, oh, it's just convenient. I'm just going to write seven. <laughs> it's just more convenient for me to do it this way, John. I don't want you to, you know, travel too much. I don't want you to sacrifice too much, so let me make it easy for you, right? No, I don't think so. But, but there are those also that believe that these seven churches fulfill what is called the historical, uh, you know, uh, development of the church. The historical development of the church. What do I mean? They are saying that, you know, if you look at the church of Ephesus, it represents the first century church, the apostolic church that was in might and power of the Holy Spirit. And you come to the church of Smyrna, it represents the martyrdom and the heavy persecution that took place under Roman rule during the first and second centuries. Then the church of Pergamos, representing the corruption that came into the church through the ruler Constantine in the third century. Thyatira, then representing the dark ages from the sixth century to about the 15th century. Sardis, a picture of the corrupt Protestant church beginning in the 15th century. And then you come to the sixth and seventh churches that Jesus writes to, the church of Philadelphia and the church of Laodicea. These people that ascribe to this historical view believe that these two churches will represent the two churches that will exist in the last days prior to Jesus' coming. 
there will be a faithful church, the Church of Philadelphia, represented by the Church of Philadelphia. Then there will be a, a, an apostate uh, church known as the Church of Laodicea. And so, you know, if you look at the chronology and the development of the church and all that, there are some similarities, and you could, there, that very much could be a partial fulfillment of why Jesus chose these seven churches. But, um, you know, I also believe that, that there, there is a very specific message to churches and that these churches represent believers and the believers that will exist in all ages throughout the church. I believe that they are specific to the individual. Although churches in general can fulfill some of these uh, things, I believe that this is to the individual, the church, the person. Very much what Jesus has to say to these churches. The, the issues that they face are, are the same issues you and I face. Very much so. The church of Ephesus. The things that they were facing. They began to neglect their priorities. The church of Smyrna. They were facing heavy satanic opposition. The church of Pergamos was being religiously compromised. The church of Thyatira has become immoral. The church of Sardis is spiritually apathetic. The church of Philadelphia, although they are faithful, have lost opportunities. And the church of Laodicea is carnal and apostate. I believe that those seven, uh, you know, those seven characteristics are, are alive and well in the church today. And they're alive and well in members of the body of Christ today. So I want to encourage you this, this morning as we begin to dive into these letters, not to hear this for somebody else. Oh, I wish somebody else was here, you know. No, no, listen to this for you. Listen to what the Word would say to you. Listen to what the Spirit of God would say to you. And when He encourages you to do something, do it. Don't just be a hearer of the Word, but be a doer of the Word. In other words, respond to the Spirit of God. You know, somebody said to me last week, yeah, I, I led worship last week, and they said, yeah, you know, when you were talking about, you know, the, the fact that God, you know, that, that we have to respond to God, that God's taken the first step towards us, but we have to respond to God, I felt like, and I gave an invitation. I just didn't say, hey, if you want to come up to the altar, come on up to the altar, but I said, you got to respond. So if the Holy Spirit moves in your heart, you need to respond. Listen, I'm not the Holy Spirit. You don't need a personal invitation from the pastor of the church to get on your knees and come to the altar. That is not what you need. You need to be obedient to the, word, to the Spirit of God. To the Spirit of God. Now, if you, if you draw attention to yourself, that is not the Spirit of God. What I'm saying is if you start running around the church, we'll tackle you and take you out. But what I am saying is that, listen, you have to respond and I want to just free you up right now to respond to the Holy Spirit when he calls you to respond. You don't need a personal invitation from me to do that. If the, it's the Holy Spirit that draws and you obey him. Amen? Listen, we believe in the gifts of the Spirit. You know, we, we believe that the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Spirit of teaching is happening right now. Prophecy. The foretelling of God's word. And so the Holy Spirit won't interrupt himself. But there's room for that, is what I'm saying. 
So if the Spirit of God were to move in your heart, please obey. Because it's not meant for you, it's meant for us. And then there are those personal moments where God is speaking to you personally, and you need to respond to that. My heart is, is that we wouldn't worry about what the person next to us is going to think if I come to the altar and pray, oh, man, they're going to think my life's a wreck. Isn't it? <laughs> mine is. I don't know. Maybe yours is better than mine. I don't know. But listen, outside of Jesus, my life is a wreck, right? And we got pressures going on, and we got all kinds of t- trials and tribulations going on in our lives, and I'm just saying that maybe God would, uh, y- you know, want you to respond to him today out of faith. And just, just, just do what he says. That's all I'm saying. Here, here's the thing. These letters are written to you. And he wants to speak to you. He begins first by writing a letter to the church in Ephesus. And he writes this. Dear church, I've summarized what Jesus has written in a title. Dear church, love again. Dear church, love again. If you're taking notes, that is my title. Look at with verse 1 with me. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write... The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now notice who Jesus is writing to, the angel of the church of Ephesus. This word angel can mean an angelic being. It can mean that. But more so, it means, it really literally means messenger. It can be an angelic being, but it also can be a human being. I believe that that word there, translated messenger, uh, or translated angel, really is speaking of a pastor of the church. I believe that he's speaking of a leader, the elder, the bishop, the overseer of the church in Ephesus. Notice it's the church. It's not the church is. Were there multiple churches in Ephesus? We just studied the book of Ephesus, or the book of Ephesians. There are multiple churches in Ephesus. But notice, Jesus calls it the church. There are multiple gatherings going on in our community today, but if their foundation is Jesus Christ and Him crucified, then we are gathering as the church. It's the church. It's, it, you know, and we, we say this often, but I want to remind you that there are, aren't multiple churches. That whatever's happening in our community with the church, you're part of. It's part of, we're part of the church. What God is doing here, other parts of the community that are founded in the crucified Savior and risen Lord are part of what God is doing here too. We're the church. There aren't multiple churches. Who is, who is it addressing the church? It's none other than Jesus. John records for us the one speaking here. Is the, is the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. We know these are the words of Jesus because he just said that in chapter 1. You may have not read it, but let me read it for you. Revelation chapter 1, verses 17 through 20. Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, the seven lampstands are the seven churches. 
Notice here, it, the first and the last. It's an Old Testament title for God. As the one and true living God. There is no God before him and there is no God after him. Every false God that has existed or will ever exist it, it, is, it has never come before God or will ever la outlast God. He is the one and true living God, the only God. And what, I, what you need to understand is Jesus is assuming that title, and rightly so. Why? Because he is God. Because Jesus is God, and, therefore, and he's saying that right there. Notice, it's the one who died, who was resurrected, who holds the keys to death in Hades. Who holds the keys to death in Hades? Jesus. How do we know? John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Who holds to the keys to death in Hades? Jesus Christ. He's the only one that holds those keys because he purchased them with his blood. He holds those keys. And there is no other way to the Father except through Him. We have to come through the cross of Jesus Christ. His blood purchased His ability to hold those keys. And what you and I need to do is believe in His death and His resurrection to be saved. That's what the Bible tells us. And when we say believe, we sang a song here earlier, I believe in God. I believe you're the God of miracles. It's one thing to believe that he's the God of miracles for everyone else, right? And then it's another thing to believe that he's the God of miracles for you. It's one thing to believe that he is the Savior of the world for everybody else, but you must believe that he's the Savior of the world for you, and not only that, but also that he becomes the Lord of your life. It's 100% surrender to Jesus who purchased your sin on the cross. That's how we're saved. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. He is the one that holds those keys. All we need to do is believe in him and crown him Lord of our lives. Notice then Jesus gives John what we talked about earlier, the outline of the book of Revelation. He goes on to define for us the seven stars and the seven golden lampstands, which he is also referencing in Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. The stars are the pastors or the messengers of the church, and the lampstands are the seven churches. Notice, those, those, those stars are being held in the right hand of Jesus. This is very important. If you're in ministry, and you are, you're a minister. Every person in here is a minister of the gospel. You've been ordained by Jesus Christ himself in Matthew chapter 28 verse 18 through 20 go therefore into all the world and, and baptize in the name of the Father the Son and the Holy Spirit you go take the gospel into the world you've been ordained to do that you're in ministry what what does this mean that he holds his messengers which is you if you're a messenger you're you're going into the world you're a messenger he's holding you in his right hand that means that you don't have the right to say whatever you want to say and you don't have the right to do whatever you want to do because he holds you in his hand. I, this is not my church. I don't have the right to teach whatever Bible book I want to or do whatever I want to do. That's up to him. It's his church. I am simply in his right hand. You are simply in his right hand and you must do what it is that he tells you to do. 
Notice also that Jesus, the activity of Jesus, he's holding here those who are his messengers. He's also walking in the midst of the lampstands. What does that mean? That means that Jesus is active and present in this moment here, right here. This, the, the lampstand represents the church. He's here right now. He's walking in our midst. What is he doing? He is examining. He is he is looking at us. He is testing us. He is considering our ways. He is evaluating us. Why would Jesus do that? Because he wants what's best for you. He wants what's best for you. As a parent, you kind of have the gist of how this works. You know, you, you evaluate your kids. You watch them. You observe them. You say like, hey, this is going. I see this, this trade in their life that I'm not so keen about. Let me start to speak into that area of their life, right? Do you do that as a parent. Well, Jesus is here and he's doing that. Like he's walking in our midst and he's evaluating, he's observing, he's watching. He's looking at your heart and he's trying to speak to you. He's trying to help you understand where you sit. Why? Because he loves you. And love will not remain silent. If you say, oh, I'm just being loving and I'm not Speaking the truth to the person that I'm supposed to be speaking the truth to, that's not love. That's pride. That's a fear of man. I'm worried about what's going to happen. If you truly love them, then you would put the relationship up for love's sake. The re reality of just saying, Lord, I'm going to be obedient and speak this word. Not, not because they're not doing what you want them to do, but as the Holy Spirit would lead you. You, you know what I'm saying. Holding back. When the Holy Spirit tells you to speak, that's not love. We're called to operate in love and speak the truth in love, right? So Jesus will do that in our lives. He will, he will speak to us. What I love about it, it, when Jesus is walking in our midst, that he just doesn't go directly to what you're doing wrong, right? What we find here in, in the book of Revelation, we find, these, um, we, we find the, this, this sort of outline, uh, which is common for all of the letters, he begins with an introduction and some sort of special attribute, which we looked at already. And then he moves into what is a commendation of the person, you know, something that they're doing right. Then he moves into correction, something that they're doing wrong, followed by a command, maybe an exhortation and a reward. Those are, that's the general outline of these letters. Jesus walking in our midst, holding his messenger in his hand, doesn't immediately jump to what you're doing wrong. He starts with what you're doing right. And I love that about the Lord. He wants to encourage you. He wants to tell you, like, hey, these are the things that you're doing right. He begins with the church of Ephesus with the commendation. Look at verse 2. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those that are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you who are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and have not grown weary. Move down to, to verse 6. Yet this you have. You hate the, the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. These are the things that they are doing right. Jesus commends them. He says, hey, let me commend you for, for your hard work, for all the things that you're doing right. Now, for us, we, we can look at that and go, well, great, they're, they seem like they're a real serious church and all. But you have to understand the, the historical uh, background of Ephesus to understand the commendation from Jesus Christ here. 
what was going on in Ephesus. Why is Jesus commending him for these things? These things should be expected, expected right? I mean, you should expect that you're standing firm in your faith, that you're standing for the truth, that you're resisting evil and those kinds of things. That We would say that just, you know, comes with being a Christian, doesn't it? Not necessarily. And particularly depends on, you know, the area in which you're living. The, the, the city of Ephesus was one of the largest and most important cities in the ancient Mediterranean world. It lied on the western coast of Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. It's one of the oldest Greek settlements on the Aegean Sea, which, listen, made it a gateway for Asia. It was the port of ports. In fact, everything that was going to come in and go from Asia and into Asia would come through Ephesus. It was, uh, you know, there was four roads, main roads that went into Ephesus. It was the epicenter of the, of the economy of, of Asia. It was a huge, huge, important city. It's economically known as the wealthiest city in Asia. They had, all, they had an incredible marketplace in Ephesus. The entertainment was bar none had this huge amphitheater where they would do all kinds of, like they, it would rival the Olympic Games in Rome. Ephesus was a very, economically speaking, a very wealthy city. Politically, it was considered what is known as a free city in this day and age. You remember that during this time period, pretty much the known world was under Roman rule. Ephesus... Uh, because of its nature and whatnot, was a free city. Although it was ultimately under Roman rule, it was, it it was self-governed. It had its own government. It had its own currency, in fact. It was a, a, a city in which uh, people that did not like Rome would flock to because they could live in the region and not be under the oppression of the Romans. And so it's, it's interesting for that re, in that respect but, but also, think about it, they had no Roman garrison, no Roman soldiers there. And so it would appeal not only to those that didn't like the oppression, but it was also appeal to those who were criminals fleeing the Roman rule. So, you know, they had all kinds of criminals that lived there. Religiously, it was, uh, you know, there was there in Ephesus the temple to Diana or Artemis. It was one of the seven wonders of the world. It was through temple prostitution that one would worship Diana, which is this, they had the statue of Diana with this multi-breasted woman. She is the god of fertility. And, and when you would worship her, it would be through sexual acts. And so the city was vile and wicked and debaucherous. And, you know, and so you put the combination of all of it together, and it was a wealthy city with lots of freedom and much debauchery and sexual immorality, much like the place we live in, pretty much like where we live, but maybe not to the same degree. But listen, it was a, a challenging place, no doubt, but it was also a prime place for the Lord to do his work. It was a prime place for the gospel to come into this region and just begin to shape it with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then that's exactly what happened. When Paul, uh, you know, on his second missionary journey, went through, uh, went, came to uh, Ephesus, 
You can read about it in Acts chapter 19. And he began to preach the gospel. It shaped the, the city. It transformed the city so much so that people gave their hearts to Jesus Christ and they forsook their lives as, the, as they were and it, it affected the economics of Ephesus. In fact, it put the Silversmith Guild out of business. So much so that a riot was created because of that. The silversmiths got together and they said, no one's buying these statues of Diana now because of this guy, Paul, who's brought this gospel into us, saying that we don't have to worship things that are made with hands, that we have a, a, a living God that we can worship in spirit and truth. And so people stopped buying, not just in the region, but people even all around that region area, uh, the gospel had gone forth and it affected these people's business. So they started a riot. And they were ready to kill Paul, but he escaped. God can transform. It's a reminder of what God can do through the power of the gospel. Maybe we need to be reminded today that we don't need another message or a cooler way to say it. Maybe we just need to stick to the, 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 the gospel itself and let it come forth because it's powerful. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God and the salvation for those who believe. Listen, we don't need a better message. We have the right message. We just need to stick to that message and bring that message into our community. And, you know, the gospel has been known to shut down pubs and, and clean out towns. And so we stick to the message of the gospel, just like those in Ephesus were doing. You might recall that Paul, when he was preparing to go to Rome by way of Jerusalem, <laughs> imprisoned, that he stopped in Miletus and he called the elders of Ephesus to himself, which is really kind of the first recorded regional pastor's conference in the Bible. And here's what he said to them. Paul spent three years there it's in Ephesus teaching them, teaching them line by line, verse by verse. He taught them the, the apostles' doctrine and he told them to stand fast in the apostles' doctrine. And then he calls them together right as he's getting ready to go to Jerusalem. And he says this in Acts chapter 20, verses 27 through 32. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among yourselves, from your own selves, will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Listen, therefore be alert. Remember that for three years I did not cease, night or day, to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Paul said, listen, I know it's going great right now, but some things are about to happen. There's going to be a rift in the body in Ephesus. There will be leaders in your church that will rise up and try and draw away those believers in some false doctrine, in some way they're going to draw away. And we know that there were Judaizers in this day that would come in and they would say it's Jesus plus something else, which is no gospel at all, folks. It's Jesus alone. 
The gospel is Jesus alone. But Paul tells them, beware, this is what's going to happen. And they took heed to it. They listened to what he said, and they were firm in it. So much so that 60 years later, when Jesus writes a letter to the church in Ephesus, that he commends them for these things. That he says to them, you're doing well. You're doing well in these areas. You are, I know your works. I know that you're working hard. I know that you're toiling long. I know that you're patiently enduring. I know that you're doing these great things here in this area. You're a busy church, full of good works, willing to suffer for the cause of Christ in an area that is licentious and wicked and debaucherous. I praise you for that. They took heed of what Paul said, and they were still doing it 60 years later. But there's a problem. They're not doing it with the right heart. They missed the why of the what. They missed the why of the what, and maybe you're here today and you're missing the why of the what. What is the why? Jesus goes on to correct them now. He says, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the the." love you had at first. When you look at this church from the outside looking in, they look flawless. They look very, very, you know, much like Jesus in the sense of their works, in the way that they were moving and and behaving and uh, holding themselves up within the public and all, that they didn't, they, they abhorred evil. They stayed distant from those things that would stain them. You know, if it, it, I liken it like this. Like, they were the kind of church that said, look, and if it has any kind of appearance of evil, I don't want any part of it. I'm just going to take the high road. I'm not going to, you know, get involved in things that are questionable. I'm just going to be, I'm just going to, you know, do my best to be very conservative with the gospel of Jesus Christ, and I'm going to do my job. It's a church full of people that worked hard. They were involved in whatever, whatever community events that they had as a church they were involved in, they were engaged in. They, they could rally people to do work. But here's the problem. They were missing the heart behind the work. It's great to have work. It's awesome to have work. But if you don't have the heart behind it, Jesus says, hold on a second. I need to correct you. I'm not just looking for external works. It has to be connected to an internal heart. Why? Because he cares about the heart. He cares about what's going on inside. Although this church seems flawless on the outside, Jesus, who is looking at this church from the inside out, spots something detrimental. There's a crack in the foundation of their faith. They have stopped operating in love. It's mere religion for them. They are not much different than a Pharisee in the sense that they are doing the works that they're called to do with no heart attached. It's a sterile church. They're, 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 they're doing good things, but they're not doing them in the right way. They're, rather than being fueled by love, they're being fueled by cynicism and pride. Do you know how that is? fueled by cynicism and pride in the church. I'm doing this because I'm a Christian, you know, and, and, you know, and, and 
look at them kind of thing. They, 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 they very much had, I believe, a, a, a downward view of the world in which they lived. Kind of like elitist mentality. That's what happens when love escapes your heart is you become an elitist. You become somebody who thinks that God is lucky to have you on his team. You, know, you, be, you become the kind of Christian that holds yourself high, shoulders back, you know, head held high saying, I'm pretty good. Look at me, I'm pretty good. Why? It's not that you're not being honest with yourself. It's that there's no heart connection. There's no heart connection to what you're doing. These guys have very much committed the same crime Israel committed, and Jeremiah spoke of it in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13. He said this, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. They have a faulty religious system that is fueled with works but is not fueled by love. And that is faulty. And Jesus says, no, no, we can't do that. We have to correct this. Because if you remember correctly, it was love that reached out to you. It wasn't good works that reached out to you. It was love. He loved you, and therefore you love him. It wasn't, you know, he demonstrated his love, yes, by what he did. But the motive for Jesus to go to the cross was not purely for good works. And that's what this church was doing. Purely out of motive to do good works. Just because that's what we're supposed to do. Jesus went to the cross because he loves us. And he wants his church to do what they're doing because they love him. And because of out of that love for him, they love others. Those are the two greatest commandments, Jesus said. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. What happened to this church? Well, they had left their first love. That The idea of this leaving, my translation says, abandon. Don't confuse what's happening here. They didn't lose it. They abandoned it. That is a willful act. Something happened, and they abandoned their first love and said, we're just going to stick with the works. Something happened in this church that caused them to say, I'm not going to do it with a heart connection anymore. Why? Because ministry hurts. When you put your heart into it, you will get your heart broken. I promise you. When you minister to people and you pour into people, you will get your heart broken. And some people at that point in time, when they get their heart broken, say, I'm not doing that anymore. I'll do the works, but I'm not, it's not going to be connected to my heart at all. I'm cutting myself off, you know, emotionally from this whole thing. And I will do what I'm supposed to do with no heart attachment. That's what they were doing. Something happened here. And they intentionally left their first love. They abandoned it. What I want you to know is that God did not abandon them. They abandoned him. And that is always the way it is, folks. They abandoned their first love. He never stopped loving them. 
And in fact, if you're in a state of abandonment here today, the reality is, is that God's never changed towards you. He still loves you exactly the same as if you were totally, you know, heart connected in everything that you're doing. He still loves you that way. He doesn't change, but we change. It's crucial that we understand that. It was God who loved them first. And listen, it will be God who loves them always. He never changes. Somewhere in the midst of these people's relationship with the Lord, they abandoned their first love and, and began to work in loveless motion that the Lord abhors. Spurgeon said this about this. He said, when love dies, orthodox doctrine becomes a corpse, a powerless formalism. Adhesion to the truth sours into bigotry when the sweetness and light of love to Jesus depart. What he's saying, everything that you're doing becomes sour to the Lord if it's not connected by love. Paul said it like this in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Listen, the text begs us right here to ask ourselves, what motive moves me? Why am I? It's asking you to consider in your own heart right now, why am I doing what I'm doing? Why am I doing the works that I do? Why do I help people that need financial help? Why do I reach out to people that, that I know have been distant towards the Lord? Why do I share the gospel? Why do you do what you do, whatever it is that you do? Why? Is it because you're supposed to do it? Or is it because love compels you to do it? There's a difference. And Jesus would rather you operate with the latter because love compels you to do it. There are seasons in our lives where we just begin to operate out of, you know, routine. And, and there, you know, we just get into a groove and we just sort of keep going. And, and if we're not careful, we comp become complacent in that and we start to disconnect from the Lord. And that's what we have to be aware of. Why are you doing what you're doing? Remind yourself this morning. Ask yourself the why. Is love the motivator of my heart or am I doing what I'm supposed to be do doing? If I'm doing what this out of because I'm supposed to be doing it. Works, listen, will accompany a true Christian. But those works can sometimes become loveless and it's this that Jesus desires to correct. How does he correct it? Through a command. Here's what he says to these believers and to you and I to do three things. Remember, repent, and repeat. Remember, repent, and repeat. Look at verse 5. Here's the command. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen, repent and do the works that you did at first. If not, I'll come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Pretty serious. Listen, if you find that you've abandoned your first love, you are commanded. It's not a suggestion. 
This is a command by Jesus Christ, and he says this. Remember, repent, and repeat. First, remember. Jesus says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. That means there is a specific point in time in which these people fell. You fell. There was a decision that was made at some point in your past that caused you to disconnect your heart from what you're doing. What is it? Well, what do you mean? What event took place that caused you to disconnect your heart from the Lord and from other people? What was it? Was it a conversation? The conversation with somebody that didn't, that didn't go the way you wanted it to go? Was it a response from somebody or, or, you know, the church that they didn't do what you wanted them to do and so you said, that's it, I'm done with being emotionally connected to this stuff and so I'm going to cut my heart off from this? Was it a prayer that you prayed? That you said, God, I, want, I need you to do this in my life and he didn't, sh- he didn't show up the way you wanted him to and so you said, that's it, I'm emotionally disconnected from this thing. I'll do what I'm supposed to do, but I'm not going to do anything more. He wants you to remember where you, it was that you fell. You did fall. You did fall. You specifically, intentionally decided to disconnect yourself, and he's asking you to evaluate your heart and find that point in which you, uh, w- when you did that, and then repent of it because it was sinful. Because any time you disconnect your heart from what it is that God's calling you to, it is sinful. It's called sin. You've missed the mark. You've not done what you're supposed to do. You, you de- departed from the Lord and you said, I know better. I'm going to do it my way. I'm not going to do this anymore because it hurts too bad as Jesus is hanging on the cross for you. I, I'm sure it does hurt, but probably not to the same degree of being crucified, you know. But, but anyway, and I say that with sarcasm. I'm sorry, but that's how I am. So here's the thing. The reality is this, that Jesus wants us to remember and then repent. It's called turn away from your sin. Lord, here's what happened, and I know you already know, but I got mad because this person did this or because you did this, and I disconnected my heart from you. Will you forgive me, confession, and will you help me? to be reconnected with you, turning away from your sin and turning back to God. That's repentance. That's what he's asking us to do. Evaluate, remember where you fell, and then repent. And then what? Go back and do your first works. Go back and do your first works. What were those works? Remember when you came to Christ? And if you're anything like any other Christian that I've ever met that comes to Christ, super excited about the Lord, right? You're just, you're like Elf, you know, and, and, and when he comes into his dad's office, he goes, I'm in love, I'm in love, and I don't care who knows it, you know, and you're telling the whole world about your relationship with Jesus, and you don't even care because you're so excited about, God, man, the Lord, I prayed, you know, this, and he met me here, and, you know, you're just so excited about it. Anybody else ever have that happen, or am I the only person here? But, but you know, it's exciting, man, the Lord, but here's the thing, that doesn't ever have to go away, by the way, but for some reason it does for, for many of us, but... The reality is, is that he's saying, well, don't let it. Return to your first works. Just start loving Jesus again, man. Remember when you did things not because everybody else was doing them and you were, you know, you, you were joining in with the crowd, but you did them because you just love Jesus? 
Like you walked outside and you're just like, dude, I'm going to pick that trash up because this is my Lord's, um, you know, <laughs> this is my Lord's lawn and I'm going to pick that up for him because I care about him. You just did things out of the, out of the love for him. You just randomly did things. That's what he's calling you back to, to that reckless abandonment of self and just saying, I'm going to love you, Lord, like I did before, like I once did. That should never be past tense in your, in your conversation, folks. I, I, I loved Jesus. No, I love Jesus. Not loved. I love. I love Jesus, and therefore, I'm doing what I'm doing. I want to do these things. We're called to repent. He wants us to return to that love and to do the, do the things that we did before. Why? Because love is a big deal for God. And in fact, love is, love is really the, the, the premise. It's, it's the, the very, very, you know, symbol of our salvation, and it's, it's a symbol of whether we are saved or not. You know that? Here's what it says in 1 John 4, 19 through 21. We love because he first loved. So we understand he, take, he took this to first step. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he does not have love for his brother whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he's not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God, listen, must also love his brother. What, what John is saying is if you, don't, if you say you love God and you don't love anybody on the horizontal, you don't love God. Why? Because love, because God transforms your heart and he fills your heart with love for people. And you know what? Granted, that's hard sometimes. There are some difficult people to love out there. You know, there are some people in your life that will challenge you to the core <laughs> on, uh, let's, I'm going to see if you really love God, you know, and, and it's like, I'm pretty sure that that's what they're doing. They really want to see if I love God, right? So, but if you do, you'll love people. Doesn't mean you won't stumble in it, but you have a general love for people. Why? Because his love is in you. And it's his love that compels you to do what you're doing. Jesus is calling this church who abandoned his first love to remember, to repent, and to repeat their first works. What is, it, what is it supposed to look like? What does love look like? Fortunately, Paul wrote it out for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Love never ends. It's a decision. You can decide to be all of these things. Why? Because Jesus set you free so that you can be. And then the Holy Spirit fills you with this kind of love that God has for you. It's the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love. So you have to allow God's love to come through your heart. Jesus goes on here. He gives the exhortation. He who has an ear, 
Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Do you have ears? <laughs> then hear what he says. That's what he's saying. Listen. Not only listen, but listen to the Spirit and what he's saying to you personally. What is he saying to you this morning? Don't miss it. Listen, there comes a point in time when it's the last, last opportunity yes, for us to, to respond to what the Holy Spirit wants to do in our life. Right? And maybe you've heard it over and over and over again. And today, it may be your last time to hear. I mean, none of us know when we're going home. So the point is that we respond when the Holy Spirit moves. And we do what he asks us to do. If we have a ear to hear, let us hear what the Spirit says to us individually. Remember, repent, and return, or repeat. Finally, he gets to the reward here. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Jesus reminds the one who conquers or overcomes, there's a reward. Who's he speaking to? Those people who are externally following the, 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 the word and, and doing all the right things? No, it's those who have an internal love for him and a genuine relationship with him. How do we know? Because that's what the word overcome means. You know, it, when you overcome, that literally means that there's victory in your life. It's, it's the Greek word nikeo, which is what we get the word Nike from. It's victory. That's what it means to overcome. Victory, Nike, nikeo. How do we overcome? The Bible tells us how we overcome. 1 John 5, 4 through 5. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the, um, the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? That's how you become victorious in your life is through belief or by faith in Jesus Christ. There is no other way, folks. That's simple. Jesus goes on to tell us in John 16, but take heart, I have overcome the world. That's why we can believe in Jesus because he has already got the victory and we gain it through him. Revelation chapter 12, verse 11. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved <coughs> not their own lives, even unto death. So to the one who is in Christ, they will be given the reward and granted to eat of the tree of life, which represents eternal life, and live in paradise, which represents heaven, and probably more specifically, the New Jerusalem, but that's another conversation for another day. Listen, nearly 2,000 years ago, Jesus wrote a letter to a literal church in Ephesus entitled, Dear Church, Love Again. And that letter is still applicable today. He's speaking to you and I. Listen, if you have abandoned your first love, the remedy is simple. Remember, repent, and repeat. Remember where you abandoned it. Repent of it, and then repeat your first words. If that's you here today, if you have an ear to hear, heed the voice of the Holy Spirit and do what he says. Listen, there are those that through a message like this, maybe come to the realization that I'm really not in Christ. I don't have a relationship with Jesus. I've never had a relationship with Jesus. There's never been a heart connection with the Lord. Well, listen, 
that relationship can start right now. If you're a believer, the call is to repentance. You know, it, it's to turn away from whatever it is that you're doing. It's to turn to Christ. It's to, you know, that is a mode in which we never, ever, um, you know, grow out of. We should continually repent as believers. It's not how we're saved. We're saved through the cross of Jesus Christ by his blood. But it's something that we keep that right relationship with God through repentance. When we blow it, we repent. But sometimes we have never, ever come to that place where we've, you kneeled before the Lord, where we've made him Lord of our life. We call him Savior, but he's not Lord. We're doing all the external things, but there's no heart connection. To that person, it's a different kind of repentance. It's repentance that the Bible says leads to salvation. Not with a worldly sorrow, Lord, I'm sorry I got caught, but with a godly sorrow that says, God, I'm sorry I wronged you. You've sinned against the Lord. And it's a relationship through Jesus Christ that remedies that. And that's the first step in this. He loved you and gave himself for you. So if you're here today and you're not in that relationship, God is calling you into that relationship as well. But again, what is the Holy Spirit saying to you? That's for you to figure out. I, we're going to close here and the worship team's going to come up. We're going to do a song. But I want to encourage you today to just listen to the Lord and follow his instructions by the power of the Spirit. Father, we thank you for this morning and for this opportunity to gather, Lord, and, and for your word. What an incredible text that we have before us today, Lord, this letter that you personally wrote to the church in Ephesus, which very much could be any one of us here today. It's a personal letter that you're speaking to maybe our heart this morning about our love, about the motive of why we're doing what we're doing, that it's a given that every Christian should be called to abhor evil, to stand fast in your word, to not allow the culture to infiltrate, but to be a game changer in the world, to take the gospel into the world and, and, to be, and live it out in our lives. And yet, Sometimes we can do that without a heart connection to you. We can slip into this mode of works. And so we just pray, God, that you move in our hearts this morning, that you bring us back to that first love, that we want to remember, Lord, where we fell. That moment that we abandoned our love for you and we traded it for our own self-comfort. And we ask for forgiveness today, Lord. And we ask you, Father, to, we just turn away from that. We want to repent of those things, Lord. We want to repent of whatever it is that caused us that, that we somehow turned internally and we looked at our, we, we elevated ourselves above you. We want to confess that and turn away from it, Lord. We ask you to be Lord of our life. And finally, Lord, we want to repeat our first works, those things in which we once did. We're just out of a loving relationship for you. We just, we're just doing things, not even thinking about it, just, just because we're in love with you. Will you bring that back into our lives this morning, Lord? We're desperate for a revival in our hearts, Lord, some anyway. We're asking you to come, Lord, now and do that work. And Father, we, we also want to just take a, a second to invite those who don't know you into relationship with you. 
As I said earlier, it's the Holy Spirit who draws a person, and so we have to respond to you. And we respond in, in, a, in a simple prayer that, that acknowledges our sin before you, that we are sinful people, that we need a Savior and a Lord who by way of crucifixion and resurrection has the authority and the power to give me life. And so if there's anyone here this morning watching or listening on the radio, Lord, we pray right now that you just help them with a whole heart to confess, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I've missed the mark. I have not lived rightly before you, and I confess that. I want to do the right things, Lord. I want to turn away from those things that I'm not doing right, and I want to do the right thing, and I'm asking you to empower me to do that today. I believe that you died on the cross for me and that your blood will set me free, Lord. And I believe that you rose again from the dead so that I can be free. And I am making you the Savior and Lord of my life today. Come in, make me a Christian, forgive me of my sin, and help me to live for you. And so, Lord, that's our prayer today. Help us to respond to your Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. You can hear more of Pastor Tim's studies through the Word of God on our website, www.calvaryofcolumbia.org. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again as we continue to study God's Word.